What I'd like to attempt to do this evening is share with you what it was like growing up in what must be the most racist country in the world. And with more emphasis on the way in which Buddha Dharma and meditation has redefined and transformed the relationship that I have with the country in which I was born. I'm not altogether sure how this is going to go, how the talk will unfold, but at some point I hope to read some passages from two books by South African authors that I'd just like to introduce you to first. One is a book called Waiting for the Barbarians, which is um, an extraordinarily powerful novel about the collective mind in a state of fear and the imaginings, terrifying imaginings of the mind when it's in the state. The other one is possibly a book that you've heard of by Alan Payton, Cry the Beloved Country. The other books you'll, you'll be familiar with. During the three-month course, I was astonished to realize how strongly the violence and pain and anger of my country has registered. And so I'd just like you to know that I'm really grateful for this opportunity to verbalize some stuff which I've never done before. And I feel that at the same time it will be a deepening of my refuge in the Sangha and also extending and widening the relationships that I have with each of you. I suspect also that it will support a process that began during the three-month course and which is clearly not yet over, so I ask you just to bear with me if necessary. Shortly before the three-month course, I was reading a feminist lesbian magazine and there was an article in this about an event that happened down in the Deep South. And it concerned a white woman who was in a supermarket and in the trolley that she was wheeling around was her daughter. And they came around a corner and they came upon a black woman with her daughter in, in the trolley. And the, the white kid turned to her mother and said, Look, Mom, there's a baby maid. And that struck me as embracing so fully the tragedy of a situation where racism and separation is so deeply entrenched, and it certainly is the tragedy of South Africa. By the time children there reach an age where they can question, they've usually been so deeply conditioned by the society that that questioning is often not even possible. I was born in Johannesburg and I grew up in a very beautiful home in one of the upper middle class suburbs of Johannesburg. We had probably the tallest wall that you've ever seen surrounding our house. Beautiful glistening swimming pool, 
lovely green lawns that were the pride and joy of my father. My mother's garden was beautiful. Our home was, was adorned with all sorts of things that my parents had brought back from their travels overseas. And outside the home, behind the garage, was uh, a little room about, or certainly, I'd say about a quarter of the size of this library. And in this room lived a succession of black men who worked for the family. And in this room was a coal stove and, and a bed, and adjacent to it was a toilet and a cold water shower. And the one fellow that lived there that I remember most clearly was Shadrach, so I'll just refer to Shadrach. And each morning Shadrach would come down to the house and would knock on the window of my parents' bedroom and my father would invariably get up and he'd go to the back door and he would go through a series of uh, lockings and unlockings and t turning off the burglar alarms. All the houses in the suburbs had burglar alarms. In private, I observed that once in every generation, without fail, there is an episode of hysteria about the barbarians. There is no woman living along the frontier who has not dreamed of a dark barbarian hand coming from under the bed to grip her ankle. No man who has not frightened himself with visions of the barbarians carousing in his home, breaking the plates, setting fire to the curtains, and raping his daughters. And Shadrach would come in and make tea and take it through to my parents' bedroom. And then he would return to the kitchen and take a bucket of hot water up to his room and do his toiletry. And he would then go about cleaning the car for my father. And his responsibilities included keeping the house clean, cooking, serving us at table looking after the garden. And so it was with all the houses in that area. And as I go back, as I have been doing more frequently lately, I come to realize that I certainly had a much closer relationship with Lady, our beautiful big bull mastiff dog that lived outside in its kennel than I did with Shadrach. And it was one of the facts of life there that the dogs were <coughs> somehow able to distinguish between black people and white people. And whenever you visited a home, you could get in really easily. But black people found it very difficult to move in and out of the homes. And somehow even the dogs had picked up this ingrained sense of separateness and difference. And I was sent to boarding school when I was nine years old in a place called Kimberley. This was in the early 1960s. And there again, the scenario was exactly the same. It was a boarding school for white, young white boys. And there were no black children there, but there were black people in the kitchen. 
doing the cooking. There were black people that cleaned the rooms. We never washed our dishes, cleaned the floors. And it was at this time that the Union of South Africa, as it was called then, seceded from the Commonwealth. And so the last vestiges of legal recourse for the black citizens of South Africa were lost at that time. And I remember that all, all of us went to bed that night that a republic was declared. And under our pillow, we put our baseball bats and our tennis rackets and our cricket bats. And I guess on some level, we were also waiting for the barbarians to come that night. But they never did. But it wasn't long afterwards that Sharpville happened. And Sharpville is, is a place between Kimberley, where I was at boarding school, and Johannesburg, where my parents lived. But none of us ever knew that it had happened. And 60 or 70 people were massacred by the police that time. We were so protected and so separate. And really, all through boarding school, I guess I was so embroiled with my difficulties in other areas that I never really questioned what was going on. And when I was 16, I was conscripted into the army, having finished my schooling. Every young boy is conscripted, every young white boy is conscripted into the army in South Africa. And the first six weeks were particularly terrifying for me because it's during this time that we were prepared for combat readiness. And the training was, on reflection, incredibly sadistic and harsh. And one of the things that, that uh, was done during this time in order to ensure that we were ready for fighting was the staff sergeant who was responsible for us would come to the bungalow where we lived at all hours of the night and we had this password, it was Roman Eagle and he would just shout Roman Eagle and in two or three minutes we had to be fully clothed and booted and our rifles had to be assembled with all their moving parts our webbing securely fastened with our sleeping bags and provisions for two weeks and we had to be ready to go to war and this would sometimes happen two or three times during the night. We would just get to sleep and he'd do it again. We'd have to fly to bed and get ready and go outside. And one night, one or two o'clock in the morning, this happened again. And during the day, we were receiving really rigorous and highly disciplined uh, instructions and we were really involved in a lot of stuff. And it, Early in the morning, we were called out, and this time there were trucks waiting for us. And we got into the trucks and we were taken to this big building, and in the building were all these chairs that were laid out like the inside of an aeroplane. And we were told that this time we were really going. And I was beside myself with fear and anxiety and terror. And suddenly this rifle, which I knew so well and which to some extent I'd regarded as a, as not a toy, but I'd never regarded it as the lethal weapon that it could be, 
suddenly was just burning in my hands and I, I knew that there was no way that I could ever use it. And there was also no way I could share the way I was feeling because we were all soldiers and we were all strong and certainly a large proportion of the fellows that were there with me were really relishing the idea of finally going out and doing what they'd been trained to do. And it didn't happen. We were there for several hours and then we were taken back to our bungalow. And but I used to really hate shooting. And every week or two, we'd be taken to the shooting range and lie down at 100 yards or 200 yards or 300 yards, each one of us with a target in front of us. The targets would come up and I had a really good friend, Robert, who always used to be next to me and he was a really good shot. And these targets would come up with the silhouettes of people on them, either standing or sitting or lying. And I could never shoot these things. And so he used to put five on his and five on mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to like shower my ten all over the place. <laughs> And the thing about it was that we had to gain a certain proficiency in our shooting, otherwise we had to do it again and again and again and again. And if we didn't, we were put on extra guard duty and we weren't allowed to go home. I guess that was the first time that I touched some of the violence of a country living in such fear. And then after the year in the army, I went on to university in Johannesburg. And I trained to, to be a chartered accountant, or a CPA, which was five years of training. And I used to work during the day and go to university at night. But I used to try and get to the university early so that I could see what the art students and the social science students had been up to. And it was a splendid university with a, a liberal and radical tradition, and I was really fired by a lot of the stuff that was going on. And in the early 70s, you may recall, there was a really widespread campaign among the English-speaking universities in South Africa to bring to the attention of the people there incredible disparity between black and white education in the country. And it was a real scary time because it was the first time that such a widespread campaign had been mounted and the passions were very high. And I used to leave work early and go to university and stand with my briefcase and my suit and tie and hold a banner and the cars would all stream by on their way home, white people this way, and the black people would be off to Soweto and Alexandria and Orlando that way. And the cars would hurl abuse at us. Sometimes they would flick their lights or, or say hi or something. And one day I was standing over there and all the police vans arrived and they pulled out and there was an island in the middle of the road. And it wasn't wide, it must have been about five or six foot wide. And they lined up three deep there, these policemen, 
in like a solid wall and they were just ready to come and the image of them is absolutely frozen in my mind because that truly was the moment when I realized just how violent and divided the country was because all we were doing was standing there with these signs that weren't particularly inflammatory because if they had been we would have ended up in jail and there were about 50 or 60 of us and there were a couple of hundred of the policemen and a whistle was blown and the traffic was stopped they just flew at us and we ran and whoever they caught they climbed into with their truncheons and there were tear gas bombs and smoke bombs going off all around and I disappeared into a building and couldn't see my eyes were so filled with tear gas and it was kind of the birth of an incredible anger and violence and real space of blaming for me and my father was ashamed that I'd even been involved in, in this and he received my anger because I felt that he was symbolic of the reason why the country was in the mess that it was. And as soon as I could, having graduated and earned enough money, I left South Africa. And my sense was that I could never return and I was going to a place where, anywhere, where I'd never find the same sort of separation and anger and division. I traveled in Europe with a friend and we went over and lived in Iran. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, yeah, really. And uh, I, I was working for a British company in Iran, and the place to visit after work for a drink was the Tehran Club, which was the place where all the English people would go and sort of weep into their pink gins and bemoan the fate of the empire. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it, it was, it was really a blow for me to, to find these people talking about the Iranians as coons and niggers and separating themselves almost totally from the population and much the same as Rebecca was talking about in Nicaragua and as my circle of friends widened and I came to know many Americans there the situation was identical to the one that Rebecca was describing in Nicaragua where Americans would come and virtually have no contact with the local population on a social level. They had their own swimming pools and tennis courts and commissaries and embassies. And suburbs where only Americans stayed. And they were British suburbs where only British people stayed. And I moved into a part of Tehran where there weren't many foreigners and lived with the Baha'i family near the Tehran Bazaar. 
And I came to, as my proficiency in Persian or Farsi increased, I came to really celebrate these amazing people. I, I came to find a degree of kindness and generosity and loving that I'd never known before. And I, I was there for, for four years and with the approaching revolution and being a South African, it seemed very clear that it was time for me to leave. And so I left and came to North America, as did many of my Persian friends fleeing the revolution. And here again, I found exactly the same thing. These people arrived from Iran, and this was the time of the hostages. And they suffered the most incredible abuse at the hands of American people. I was living in New York, and as were many of my Persian friends, and they would tell me stories of being thrown out of taxis. And My friend Mariam used to receive the most incredibly obscene and violent notes in her letterbox and under her door, and they'd be jostled in the streets and stuff. And I came to realize, such was my naivety, that what was going on in South Africa in one form was pretty much going on all over the world in its own way, although never to the extent that it is back home. And for immigration reasons, I had to return to South Africa after living in New York for a couple of years. And I didn't really want to go, and I was, I was really in bad shape and I found myself sitting in a retreat with uh, Joseph Goldstein in Zululand. And it was like a thunderbolt inside of me. And recently I've realized one of the reasons why the impact was as strong as it was and that was I was hearing in what he was saying a permission to a permission for a tenderness and a gentleness that I guess had died in me when I was left at boarding school twenty years before. And the meta meditation hearing him talk of loving and compassion and and kindness. These were words that I'd never really heard from the mouths of, from the mouth of another man before, and I was electrified by it. And so when I was asked if I'd like to live at Ikopo, I, I gave up a prospective position as an executive with the holiday inns. <laughs> and agree to live in Ikopo. Actually, it's not Ikopo, it's Ikopo. What is Ikopo? Ikopo. There is a lovely road that runs from Ikopo into the hills. These hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are lovely beyond any singing of it. The road climbs seven miles into them, and from there, if there is no mist, you look down on one of the fairest valleys of Africa. 
About you there is grass and bracken, and you may hear the forlorn crying of the titihoya, one of the birds of the felt. Below you is the valley of the Umzumkulu, and on its journey from the Drakensberg to the sea, and beyond and behind the river, great hill after great hill, and beyond and behind them the mountains of Ingeli and East Griqualand. The grass is rich and matted. You cannot see the soil. It holds the rain and the mist and they seep into the ground, feeding the streams in every kloof. It is well tended and not too many cattle feed upon it. Not too many fires burn it, laying bare the soil. Stand unshod upon it, for the ground is holy, being even as it came from the Creator. Keep it, guard it, care for it, for it keeps man, guards man and cares for man. Destroy it and man is destroyed. Each morning we would get up in Ikopo and there the buildings are all separate. Halfway down Naroda Mountain, where the retreat center lies, is the lodge where up to 30 people can live. And then you walk from the lodge up to the meditation hall and then through the forest to the dining room and then down the mountain to the offices. And in the morning we would walk up from the lodge the meditation hall in the darkness and begin the period of sitting and then when our eyes opened again the day had begun and we'd wander down the mountain to a little amphitheater grassed amphitheater that had been dug out of the, the side of the mountain and we do tai chi and warm-up exercises there and very often in the mornings the mist was down just as it was this morning here it was an Ikopo morning here this morning. And sometimes the mist would rise and around this amphitheater were all these silver leaf trees and the light of the sun would catch them and they would just twinkle like a million jewels all around this amphitheater where we'd be doing our Tai Chi and our greeting the sun in the morning. And my time at Ikopo was very much in experimenting with being as gentle and as tender as I could possibly be. And I seem to feel an inner permission as well as an outer permission to be that. And each weekend, much as happens here, people would pour into, into the retreat center and for the weekend retreats, 30 people in and 30 people out. And each morning, Either Anthony, who was my friend there, or myself would read. And there was one reading that I used to really love doing there. It seemed that what was happening on that mountain was so different to what was going on in the rest of the country. And it seemed like this particular piece in the middle of a retreat kind of brought a perspective to why, why we were there. This is from the Tao Te Ching. Good weapons are instruments of fear. All creatures hate them. 
therefore followers of Tao never use them. The wise man prefers the left, the man of war prefers the right. Weapons are instruments of fear, they are not a wise man's tools. He uses them only when he has no choice. Peace and quiet are dear to his heart, and victory no cause for rejoicing. If you rejoice in victory, then you delight in killing. If you delight in killing, you cannot fulfill yourself. On happy occasions, precedence is given to the left. On sad occasions, to the right. In the army, the general stands on the left, the commander-in-chief on the right. This means that war is conducted like a funeral. When many people are being killed, they should be mourned in heartfelt sorrow. That is why a victory must be observed like a funeral. Our neighbors were a black Zulu village on the adjacent mountain. And the property there really doesn't know any boundaries. And so in the morning when we'd be doing Tai Chi or sitting in the meditation hall, people would just be wandering through and they were quite comfortable with what we were doing and if we were whatever, if there was an Aikido weekend or a yoga weekend and people were standing on their heads or throwing themselves around, it was just a wonderful coexistence and acceptance that was happening over there. And on the property lived Vukimpi Mbanjwa and Mkimpi had been there all his life, as had his father. He was a splendid old man, about in his 70s, and he, he told me that I was to call him Baba. And Baba is his is, is father. And so for my time there, he, he was my father, and he took great delight in, in letting me know how inept and hopeless I was <laughs> insofar as working with the soil and sawing wood and cutting down trees and herding cattle. And he taught me so much. I'll never forget once he was plowing his crops and uh, his kids were there as they always were around him, four or five of them. And his wife was there and there were these beautiful parallel lines and the ox was ahead and he would either do it or he'd hand it to one of the little kids who were eight, seven, nine, ten years old. And I came along and he asked me if I'd like to plow a couple of furrows. And so I said sure and I went over and he gave me this plow and for whatever reason, I don't know, it was just like I took hold of this thing and I set off just right across all these beautiful parallel lines. <laughs> and this oxen was like pulling me along and I was flying and his wife was screaming at the top of her voice. She thought this was really the funniest thing she'd ever seen. And the kids were laughing and I was, I was astonished. And he tried to show me how to do it and he tried and he tried and I could never imagine it. And he, he, he was... Um, he, he was a wonderful, he is a wonderful teacher for me. Um, he, he has, I think, three or four wives, definitely three, if not four. And he lived on the property with one of his, 
his wives. He has about 27 children. And one of his wives is a Sangoma. And the Sangoma is, is a witch doctor. And I, I only saw her once, really. He used to keep her away. And I think the reason why was because Mabel, who was the wife who, who lived on the property, uh, a splendid and colossal woman, I don't think would, uh, would have her anywhere near the place. And so one day she arrived and she was a, a really a severe looking woman with, with um, hard features, her hair matted and beaded and her face covered in red clay, heavy rings on her legs, rings on her arms, big earrings in her ears, ears would be widened and forced. And I tried to remember what she was wearing, but I just remember skins and, and sort of tattered clothing, beads and bones. And the Sangoma is a very integral part of life in tribal Zululand. I became very friendly with the nuns at the local hospital and they were saying how difficult it was to treat these people because they would receive one medication at the hospital and another when they went back home and sometimes there were difficulties. But Sundays were the best days at the center because on Sundays there was church and there was always a lot of drums going and a lot of singing and, and usually the parties that began on the Saturday night would a certain extent through until Sunday evening and so there was a lot of activity and a lot of singing and there was one folk song that I really I really loved more than any other and it's a song about a Sangoma and it's about this Sangoma who is moaning and complaining because everybody comes to her with their complaints and their difficulties and their problems and she feels that there's absolutely nowhere for her to go when she's feeling the same way. And this is that song, it's sung by some kids that I was working with. Oh, my God. 
So I guess my my search for loving began at Ikopo and I left after a year, worked and earned some money and returned here. Tried to return to the life that I'd left two years before in Seattle and that clearly wasn't what the universe had in store for me. And I, I went to the monastery in, in Boulder Creek and ordained at, at, uh, at Tampulu's place there. And, and then I came on here where I met many of you and stayed on as an LTY, went to Gaia House, came back here, and then I went back to South Africa. And this part of it, a number of you are familiar with, so if you can just bear with me, please. My parents had now moved to the coast, to Natal, in Zululand, on the Indian Ocean. They have a place right on the beach there. And each day I would go walking in the sugarcane fields. And on one of my trips through the sugarcane, I met Armstrong Zulu. And in five minutes, Armstrong Zulu knew my whole life story as well as the fact that I was a chartered accountant. And he was having trouble with his bookkeeping and asked me if I would assist him and some of his friends with, with accounting. I agreed to do this and went home. And it was clear that my father was not going to allow this black person into his home. And so I arranged with Armstrong to to do it at a school near where he lived. And this caused quite a deep rift in the family and my father and I had the most heated exchange that we'd ever had up until that point. And the next morning I got up and went down to the railway station and asked for a ticket to Ungababa. And the man at the railway station told me that I had no business in Ungababa. It was a black area. And I told him I wanted a third-class ticket to Ungababa and that he had really no right to tell me where I could or couldn't go. And he told me I couldn't have a third-class ticket because the third-class tickets were for blacks and those were 25 cents. And I had to go first-class, which was a dollar or a rand in South African terms. And so I eventually got my ticket and the train pulls up and it's packed. Every carriage is absolutely packed with black people. And I climb into the white compartment, I'm the only person there. And so, <laughs> there we go, down the coast, all along the, the sea to Ungababa. And I climb out at Ungababa and stand at the bottom of the mountain. On top of the mountain is the school. And I was... I was so fearful, I was, I was terrified. There wasn't a, a white person there. I'd never been that alone in a black area before. And it was a really important moment for me because the fear and the terror was just ripping through me like a thunderbolt. And there was a disengagement from it and 
I walked up the mountain just watching the fear and watching it and and I was able to get to the top of it of the mountain and to the school and relatively uninvested in what was going on inside of me and I worked with Armstrong and his friends and they went off and wrote their exams. This was over a couple of weeks and the headmaster asked me if I'd work with the children at the school, which I did. And this was a real celebration for me. There were 50 or 60 kids in the classroom and we enjoyed each other and loved each other. And I was working on the conversational English and economics with them. And It was really one of the happiest times for me. And in the evenings I'd go home and it was, I was also very alone at the time. I didn't have anyone that I could talk to, say, as I'm talking to you this evening. And I would go home and I would sit in front of the television that was filled with propaganda and coercion and I would listen to these politicians talking of their separatism and of their violence and, and their stuff and I would try and bring that same quality of loving that I, that I come to know up in the classrooms to, to the television and just try and open to these people. I was trying to open to my father. I was seeing myself really clearly reflected in my father's fears and my father's anger. And I spent a lot of time on the beach, walking up and down the beach with the birds. The waves would fly up the beach and the birds would just be a couple of inches ahead of the waves all the time. It's so beautiful, the waves are, are colossal. And somehow I knew that there was an imbalance in my relationship to what was going on. I just couldn't understand that things were so unfair. And then it, and then it suddenly just became clear to me. I, I guess it was possibly in just doing this meta in front of the television all the time or something, <laughs> I don't know. But I suddenly realized that, that these people believe in what they're doing as deeply as I believe in the reason why I'm here and I do what I'm doing here. And somehow I'd perhaps heard that but it hadn't registered and they really totally and fully believe that what they're doing is the Word of God and the dictates of Christ and they believe it totally and they pursue it as zealously as I pursued Buddha Dharma. And with that realization, it seemed like all the anger and the bitterness and the justification just dropped away and just seemed like so much indulgence and so much separation on my part. Very much what Rebecca was saying as well. And it seemed like any movement towards a posture that excluded the whole spectrum was not something that I could be comfortable with. 
And it was so freeing. And I realized in that moment that the relationship with my country became workable. It seemed like opening to the truth and to this battle of ignorance and it just became workable in seeing it as it was. And so what was happening up on the mountain suddenly began to expand and, and I began visiting the, the white schools and speaking to the headmasters and telling them about the school that while the white schools were concerned about how many video recorders they had and whether they needed a second or third swimming pool, the school where I was teaching didn't have running water, second or third swimming pool, the school where I was teaching didn't have running water or electricity or a telephone. And the response was incredible. We drove truckloads of books and maps and all manner of equipment, textbooks, up the mountain and began establishing a library. And then it extended. And it was all fear. It it all came down to this question of, of fear because the moment that someone was prepared to challenge the division and the separation, the interconnection became workable and possible. And so we had truckloads of manure and plants going up there. We started establishing gardens. We, we got a feeding scheme going to, to feed our children. Windmill was put in. An, an Indian community in Durban donated $25,000 and three classrooms began to be built. And on the, on the last day that I was at the school, we had sent out invitations for everyone that had helped us to come and celebrate the opening of our library. And, f and for each of us that were there that day, it, it was really a journey, but the one journey that was probably the most poignant for me was my father. Because a couple of months earlier, I'd arrived home from school and my mother met me at the door and told me that she'd been in the bedroom and my father hadn't realized this and the phone had rung. And the conversation was something like this. This woman had phoned and said she had some encyclopedias that she wanted to donate to the school. And my father said, well, it's my son you want to speak to, but you do know that they don't have a library at the school up there. And it's really disgusting when you think what our children have and what the school doesn't have. And where do you live? And tell me about the encyclopedias. And he went off and collected these encyclopedias I put them in the garage and didn't tell any of us and we didn't let him know that we knew. And a friend of mine gave a couple of hundred dollars for shelving for the library and towards the end, one day I was really late and I was flying out the door to try and catch the train and I hadn't had time to make breakfast for my father and I. And my dad said, well, what's the rush? And I told him that I was going to miss the train. He said, well, I'll give you a lift to the school today. 
and he'd never been into a black area before, you know. And so I just said, great, I didn't question it. And so we had breakfast and he drove me up to the school and I mentioned to him that, you know, I had to buy all this wood and I didn't know what size to buy and I was going to make these shelves, although I'd never made shelves before. And anyone looking at those little yogi needs boxes <laughs> will see how valiant <laughs> my intentions were. <laughs> and so I mentioned this to him and asked him if he would just give me some advice. And he told me, no, the minute you get involved with these people, then there's just no end to it all. So I said, fine. And we were driving. By the time we got to school, he said, you know, I think I'd better come in and measure that wood because you're going to make an absolute mess. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, great, in we went and I got a couple of the pupils out and my dad spent a couple of hours there measuring up and everything and stuff. And the headmaster invited my father and I over for tea at break. And we had tea and my dad said, you know, Gavin is going to make these shelves and you know, it can only be a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just think I better come up here and do these shelves for you. And so my father, who four months before had said that he, want, that he couldn't understand why I was going because the barbarians would probably burn the school down anyway, had, had really made quite a journey himself. And on... He built the shelves and they were beautiful and on the day of the farewell we didn't know how many people were going to come and uh, it was at nine o'clock and at half past eight the parking lot was full of cars and at about quarter to nine the buses started rolling up with white school children and uh, teachers from the school and we had this a really astonishing day singing and speeches and all the pupils brought mangoes and papayas and avocado pears as a gesture of their gratitude for everything that had been given to the school. And again, as I, as I said before, people, there were from 12, 13 years old white people to people that were the age of my grandmother that had never been in a place like that before. And would overcome whatever it was that had prevented them from doing it. And we opened the library and I left and, and came back and That was earlier, that was the middle of last year. And so, it's clear having come out of this three months retreat that the violence in South Africa has escalated and, it's, and it continues. And I see for me the the challenge in the search for loving is to, is to find a space to open up to the pain and suffering of the 
can bring someone to the point where he decides that he's going to leave a bomb in a shopping center on the coast of Zululand in Natal and to open up to my responsibility for that suffering that is brought into that point. And the challenge for me is to open up to the suffering of someone that can walk into a shopping center and leave a bomb and walk away from it knowing that it's going to explode and cause some degree of, of pain. And one of the letters which I got when I came out of the retreat was from this little girl. She says, to Mr. G.W. Harrison, my name is Melody Scott Kelly. I'm 10 years old. I'm in Standard 2B. I was born on the 8th of August. This was what I used to look like at the beginning of the year. There's a little, there's a photograph of her. She says, Mr. G.W. Harrison, please give me a pen friend. I'm a girl if you're not sure. <laughs> S-H-U-R-E. I will not tell you my interests. I will tell my pen friend my interests. <laughs> and she leaves her address and her telephone number and she says, I hope you're not a spy. <laughs> and then at the bottom she says that she's just kidding. And I see the... <laughs> The challenge for me in my search for loving is to, is to open up to the fact that when that bomb went off just before Christmas in this crowded shopping center, three white children were killed, six people in all, and Melody could have been one of them because she lives less than a mile away from that shopping center where I've been so many times. Where, where you stand, the grass is rich and matted. You cannot see the soil. But the rich green hills break down. They fall to the valley below, and falling change their nature. For they grow red and bare. They cannot hold the rain and mist, and the streams are dry in the kloofs. Too many cattle feed upon the grass, and too many fires have burnt it. Stand shod upon it, for it is coarse and sharp and the stones cut under the feet. It is not kept or guarded or cared for. It no longer keeps men, guards men and cares for men. The Titihoya does not cry here anymore. The great red hills stand desolate and the earth is torn away like flesh. The lightning flashes over them and the clouds pour down upon them. The dead streams come to life full of the red blood of the earth. Down in the valleys, women scratch the soil that is left, and the maize hardly reaches the height of a man. They are valleys of old men and old women, of mothers and of children. The men are away, the young men and the girls are away. The soil cannot keep them anymore.
And when I sit over here, when I'm with you now, I, I know that South Africa is here with me and that the 10,000 miles that ostensibly separates me from South Africa is just an idea and an illusion. And the pain and the joy of it, I really believe, is a part of each one of us and the responsibility of each one of us. But I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a desert state sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day the state of Alabama whose governor's lips are presently dripping with the words of interposition and nullification will be transformed into a situation where little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls and walk together as brothers and sisters. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low and the rough places will be made plains, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of God shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He would have been 57 tomorrow had he lived. And so we stood on top of that mountain just before I left South Africa. And you could look out on the Indian Ocean that just extended from the one side to the other and right out to the horizon. And if you turn around the other way and look inland, you just see sugarcane as far as, as far as one can see. And we stood there around this little tree with purple flowers which we planted and we all avowed our commitment to making this library a, a symbol of the way in which people of different color can come together and help one another and we each put some spade full of soil on all the children that had worked registering and stamping the books and all the people that had given the books and then we sang the real anthem of South Africa together. It's called Nkosi Sekileli Africa, God Bless Africa. And if you listen carefully, I have a recording. 
the song that I played before was a part of that same day's celebrations. And if You can hear the voice of this one splendid mother who was there singing and the voices you can't hear are the voices of all the white mothers that were there. But you can be sure that they were also singing with the rest of us.
there. If I love this my shepherd, I shall want nothing. He makes me lie down in green patches and lead me beside the water of peace. He renews life within me, and for his name's sake guides me in the right path. Even though I was through a pain, dark as death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy staff and thy cook are my comfort. Thou spreadest the table for me in the sight of my enemies. Thou hast replaced my head with oil, and my cups run over. Goodness and love and faithful. This will show me all the days of my life. And I put I shall dwell in the house of my Lord my whole life long day. I could not breathe the parting word farewell. I sought to quit my feelings for the sake. I did not dare the man to turn as much.
have always been very aware of how fortunate I was to receive an extremely good education up in Kimberley in the Northern Cape. And I think for quite a long time, I've also been aware that there are so many people in this country who have been less fortunate than I have been. And certainly at university and since university, I have spoken so much about my concern. And I would just like to say from the deepest place in my heart to the headmaster and to the teachers here and to the students, I would like to express my appreciation and my gratitude for having been given the opportunity to really do something about something that I feel really needs to be carefully considered by people who have been as fortunate as I have been. I have been a part of a, a very special group of people here at Nganawaki. Uh, the staff, the children here at the school, and I just would like to say quite openly that I really do love you all very much and that I'm going to miss you when I leave you as I'm going to do later today. As the headmaster has said, so much has been possible here in quite a short time. The library, the classrooms that are going up, the gardens, other things which you will hear about later. And it's very important to realize that an enormous amount of cooperation has been given to me by the staff, by the headmaster, by the committee, and also by the children. There were times when I used to come up here and I used to think that when they saw my little white face appear on the horizon, the children used to run and hide. <laughs> you can't begin to imagine how much work there was involved in registering all those books, stamping them, putting the envelopes in, sticking in the date stamp, repairing them, recording them in the book, putting the dockets on the outside. It was an enormous amount of work. And the children worked very, very hard. And I hope that you, the children, really realize how much you are a part of everything that has been done here these last couple of months, including all the work that went into the gardens. However, what I'd like to do is just look for a while at the other side of the equation here. Certainly an enormous amount of generosity, an enormous amount of goodwill, an enormous amount of concern has been demonstrated by so many people outside of the school here. Here today I just thought that I might use this opportunity so that the pupils of the school can be very clear about more or less who is here today. There are teachers and pupils from Kingsway High School. Uh, these ladies and gentlemen that you see on my right 
of members of the Standard 9 class of Kingsway High School in Amanzan Toti. And there are teachers here from Kingsway High School. There are, uh, Reverend Seaborger is here from the Methodist Church, as well as his wife and other people from the congregation. There are also individual people here today, just people who are concerned and interested about the school. And there are individuals that are here that have helped in various different ways. I would also like to just specifically mention Joel Tomlinson and the Reed organization, because Joel has been an invaluable uh, friend during the planning for the library. The Reed organization is uh, an organization that was established some times ago to establish libraries in schools such as this one. And the way in which they operate is they receive their funds from business, white business, and they then apply those funds to establishing libraries, to establishing systems for libraries, and also to buy books. And we have several thousand rands worth of new books in the library that were given to us by Reed. And Reed is also going to take responsibility for training a number of our teachers to operate this library, as well as introducing the children to the whole idea of what a library is and how it can be used. And so I would just like to personally and directly thank Joel for the help that she's been. Thank you, Joel. also very important to realize that what has been possible has, has come from not only white people, but the enormous generosity of the Asian community who have helped us or who have contributed towards the cost of building four, life, uh, four classrooms here, as well as many black people. It's also quite interesting to realize that three different spiritual traditions that have been in the background of what is happening over here. So possibly the most exciting thing about what you see around here now is that it has been possible by people of all colors and by people of all commitments who have come together at the level of the heart the level of listening to needs and responding to them. Really outside of bureaucracy and outside of politics and outside of areas of complication, just listening and wanting to help. And for me, that is probably the most exciting thing of all. There are, if I may, and it seems that it would probably be most appropriate if I mentioned this, there are a couple of areas at the school that are really very important and I just shared them with you today. One of them is the situation of the water. As you can see in the quadrangle here, we collect the water that we do have from the roof and it goes into these tanks and then it is used, of course, during the dry season as well. And at this point, our water is just about finished. Um, in fact, last week we actually ran out of water and we fortunately received a little rain and so we have some now, so we will be having tea afterwards. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.